We close out another week on Today in Ohio without knowing what the legislative districts are in the state for this year's elections. Kind of amazing how bollocked up that has been. Hopefully, we'll get some resolution next week. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with a cheerful group of regulars because it's Friday. Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. Happy Friday. Happy yeah. Friday. Doesn't mean much to a retiree, but yay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so envious of you. <laughs> 20 more years, slow, it'll be it? you. I know. I, I, I got no, by the time mulch. they get there, 30 more years oh, easy. <laughs> yeah, oh God. I got all my mulch yesterday. So even if it's going to snow, I am spreading mulch tomorrow. Okay, well... Good segue. Speaking of retirement, why were the social security numbers of people accused of crimes in Cleveland publicly accessible on Thursday? Layla, this is not supposed to happen. No, this is this was a pretty serious snafu with the Cleveland Municipal Court's new public website for for nearly an hour between 11 a.m. and 12 p.m. When the court site went live Thursday, it it provided access to personal identification information, including social security numbers for defendants. And the glitch was in a section of the new website that at at the time allowed members of the public to download filings in criminal or traffic cases. It appears that this came to light when a reporter, uh, a Cleveland.com reporter, I'm assuming it was Adam. Adam. Was it Adam It was Paris? Adam Paris, yeah. They call me and say, what <laughs> do was... we do if we write about this? <laughs> are we are we giving away data? But they had fixed it. And I said, no, nobody can get them anymore. Let's go ahead and write the story. But yeah, Adam, yeah. public service, saved lots of people from possible identity theft. It's amazing. Yeah, he was looking at a case and he spotted a social security number that shouldn't have been there. And according to his story, he was on the phone with the court spokesperson, Obi Shelton, at the time and notified him immediately. And Shelton said that during during that time, that window when it was those numbers were available, 484 attempts were made to access the website. But it's unclear if any documents were downloaded containing that personal information. So. The court is still trying to figure out what went wrong with their rollout of this new technology. Sheldon said that the court's IT employees immediately removed from public access the problematic section of the website. But that's a pretty serious data breach. They better iron that out. Well, and if not for Adam, who knows how many hours this would have gone on? I mean, good for Adam for noticing it, notifying the court. And then we didn't write the story until people couldn't go on and get those anymore. They moved very, very quickly. I am a little bit surprised, not a little bit, a lot surprised that they didn't do testing that would have bubbled up the revealing of this kind of personal confidential yeah. data. Good point. Um, and we all know whenever you go to a new computer system, bad things can happen. But privacy in the court system is kind of an important detail exactly. to be on top of. So. Way to go, Adam, in, in getting it and give credit to the court for moving quickly to fix it. I, I wonder mm-hmm. if the county has yet fixed its paying its, its software for paying people. We're hearing <laughs> much about it. Okay. <laughs> Stay tuned. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are Northeast Ohio zoos taking a page from other zoos in the nation to protect their birds 
from the avian flu outbreak that is ravaging parts of our bird populations. Lisa, we saw a story that other zoos were doing this, and we set out to find answers here. Of course, the Metro Park Zoo refused to tell us anything for about a day and a half. They're so helpful. But what's the deal? The Akron Zoo has moved all of its birds to indoor enclosures to prevent an avian flu outbreak amongst that population. The avian collection manager there, Joel Golgoski, says they have to do that because what happens during feeding times, because of the way the enclosures are, wild birds mix in with the zoo birds during feeding times. And spring migration is going on. He says that's a concern. There are two major migratory flyways through northeast Ohio. He says he he doesn't know when the these birds will be moved outside again. The Cleveland Zoo did issue a statement. They said certain bird species were moved indoors, but they offered no other details on that. So, yeah. It was, it was kind of hilarious, right? Because th- this is, people who care about birds are worried about this. We call, simple question, hey guys, what are you doing to protect your birds? And for a day and a half, they refuse to answer why, I don't know. And then they give us the barest details that they want people to care about the zoo. I just don't get how the zoo does public relations under Wait, Brian to, Zimmerman. To clarify, they only gave us a statement after Evan put up the story, right. Evan McDonald, that said Akron Zoo and what they're doing and said Cleveland Metro Parks had no statement. And then they're like, oh, wait, I guess we look stupid. Yeah, we'll I, yeah and so they, they put out a statement that keeps yeah. them looking stupid. You know, Akron <laughs> immediately gives us all the details. We're doing this, we're doing this, the penguins, blah, blah, blah. And the Cleveland Zoo doing what it typically does. Such a hassle. And this is this is folks. this is serious. I mean, 23 million birds in America have died either from the flu itself or from culling flocks, which is mostly chickens and turkeys. So, yeah, this is a serious issue. I know that people care about. Yeah. So they want to know, hey, you know, what's going on with our zoo? What are you doing to protect the eagles and all that? And, you know, in other zoos, they they built roofs over the outdoor mm-hmm. enclosures to keep the birds from swooping in. Are we doing that? What are we doing? So anyway, maybe they'll give more detail now. <laughs> it's Today in Ohio. The last few years have seen a lot of turnover in the Cleveland power structure, and Thursday brought a surprise announcement of yet another major figure stepping away. Laura, who was it? So this is Len Komorowski, the CEO of the Cavs. He joined the Cavs as president in 2003. That was two years before Dan Gilbert bought the team in in 2005 and has been the CEO ever since 2013. So let's put that in perspective. 2003 was the same year LeBron was drafted. So that is a whole long time ago. I mean, 19 years. So he's going to remain affiliated with Rock Entertainment Group, which is Dan Gilbert's company. He's going to focus on the company's growth and development. But he's not just a Cavs guy. He worked on a lot of deals throughout the city to get things to uh, the queue and then to transform it into Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, but the RNC and all sorts of events he had a hand in. Yeah, I've gotten to know him a bit over the years because he has been around for a very long time and he has been involved in lots of things. And I always found him to be you know, a true gentleman, even when he had legitimate grievances with something we did in our coverage. As he presented it, he always did it in a very reasonable fashion. He was never one of those that, that screamed and yelled and said bad things. Just a good guy who has been very active in all sorts of public causes. So many, I was having a hard time remembering them all because he goes back so far. And he was part of the original debate about the convention center. They had been trying to put it over by Tower City 
um, and was was you know very active in all of that. So I he's he's going to stay in town. So I imagine mm-hmm. that means he will remain active in the various discussions or no. Probably. He's been on a bunch of boards, including the Greater Cleveland Partnership, the Downtown Cleveland Alliance, and Destination Cleveland, which obviously are huge when it comes to business and tourism in Cleveland. And um, so I, I believe he'll still have a role in that and, and plan for the future and maybe to see what next events he could bring here because he had a role in bringing the NCAA tournaments and the All-Star Weekend. So, you know, who knows what else we'll see. Yeah, he's a smart guy. He's been he's got a lot in his background that helped the city, so it was a surprise and I don't think anybody saw that coming. I mean, I, the, the the reaction that I saw everywhere was like, "Wow, it's a he's been just a fixture." So good luck to him. It's today in Ohio. We've talked repeatedly on this podcast about a move in the legislature to save commercial property owners a bundle of cash at the expense of regular Ohio homeowners helping, we hope, gum up this bill for a while by talking about how sleazy it is. But it has now been amended a bit and passed. Layla, is it still a big gift, a big smooch from the lawmakers to the commercial property owners? Yeah, I mean, pucker up, right? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. The final version that was sent to Governor DeWine this week included changes that really shift the burden on on the tax burden on residential property owners by creating all kinds of loopholes for commercial property owners. Obviously, school districts more often challenge commercial property values because changes in home values just don't don't generate a significant amount of tax revenue compared to commercial properties. But under this latest version of, of House Bill 126, commercial property owners and developers really benefit the most from these changes. And among them, the school districts would be allowed to continue to file counter complaints when property owners want to lower their values at the Board of Revision. But school districts can only initiate complaints when there has been a recent sale of a property and the sale price was at least 10% and $500,000 more than the county auditor's value of the property. That is quite a high bar to clear. Um, School boards have to adopt a resolution to allow an attorney to initiate a property value complaint at the Board of Revision. For the past 45 years, most districts would allow their attorneys to just work with district administrators to determine which properties to challenge. So that is a big departure from the way it's worked. Uh, School districts can't appeal boards of revision decision to the Ohio Board of Tax Appeals, but property owners can. Mm. (laughs) Um, Government entities that receive property taxes wouldn't be allowed to enter into a private settlement with a property owner to dismiss or settle a complaint. So they're hamstrung in the way they they handle these matters. And boards of revision would have to dismiss a, an original school district complaint a year after it was filed if there isn't a decision by then. The current law requires boards to render decisions within 180 days, but there, you know, there isn't a mechanism for dismissal of a complaint. Uh, It just completely shifts the tax burden to the residential property owners, and it blocks the due process for local governments and school districts. Don't you agree? Yeah. So here's (laughs) here's the the Republicans in the legislature. This one, the Democrats is Matt Huffman, Bob Cup. Here they are claiming to serve the people of Ohio, making the rich get richer, and sticking it to all of the people who vote in this state. It's it's a stunning 
slap in the face of regular people while they stand up every year and claim they're serving the citizens of Ohio. And you watch, Mike DeWine will sign it while he's claiming that he serves the people of Ohio. This is going to cost regular people more money while making the commercial property owners richer. It's just inexcusable that they've gone down this road. But this is what we get with gerrymandering and and dishonest politicians that really don't do what they claim to do. How, how are they going to defend this you know, when it's time? I mean, I how, I, what, how can they defend this to their constituents? I don't, you know, Layla, I think we've reached a point where there's been so much misbehavior by politicians that people aren't paying attention. That was the goal, right? Just lie to them repeatedly, be, be, cause controversy, do bad things, and people look away. We've seen that. People are like, I'm t- so tired of all the bad news. You know, when, when the gerrymandering happened 10 years ago, there was a lot of activism. And this time, there's a lot less activism because I think people are just burned out. That's the cynical approach that the legislators are taking. We don't think people are going to pay attention. Well, and I think there's the spin from the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, right? That this is limiting the overreach of school boards. Yeah, which is ridiculous. It's a, right. There's nothing about this that is legitimate. This is, to, and, you know, we'll, we'll see. Will there be an investigation some years from now that finds that there was sinister reasons the legislature pushed this? Well, you know, like we saw in the first energy case. And let's not forget the drop-down LLCs that these commercial property owners are using as a loophole to hide the value of their their property when it sells. I mean, that's a loophole that needs to be closed. Well, if, if the uh, Democratic uh, primary winner for the governor's race, John Cranley or Nan Whaley, want to. They can make an issue of this if DeWine signs it. You know, he's sticking it to you to to pay off the big property owners. So maybe that threat will have the governor veto it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What would it mean to Clevelanders if JetBlue beat out Frontier Airlines in the battle to merge at Spirit Airlines? Lisa, the combination of JetBlue, which is much more of a luxury flyer, with spirit, which isn't anything but, seems like it doesn't work, but all the industry experts say it does. And this is an unsolicited bid. I mean, JetBlue offered $3.6 billion to buy spirit, which is a Florida-based low-cost airline. But two months ago, Frontier Airlines announced a merger with Spirit, and that that merger, if it went forward, would make them the fifth largest airline. So actually, as far as it goes with Cleveland Hopkins Airport, a Frontier Spirit merger would probably have a greater impact. Because if you look at Hopkins passengers in 2021, Frontier was number four with 14.3% of passengers. Spirit was number five with 13.3% of passengers. JetBlue was dead last at only 1.9%. They also cut their Cleveland to Fort Lauderdale routes temporarily. So, you know, JetBlue and Spirit, the only benefits there that some analysts are saying is, you know, the price might come down for JetBlue. And JetBlue does have good customer service. They consistently get high marks on their customer service. Yeah, well, and if Spirit and Frontier combined, because they serve so much of Cleveland, it it, it would hurt us. But, you know, JetBlue is just not a, a factor here. So it'll be interesting to see which one of them wins. Yeah. It's today in Ohio. Ohio is getting $259 million in federal transit money with the bulk of it going to Cleveland. 
What will the Regional Transit Authority do with it? Laura, we're going to have to guess here because we don't have them on the record yet. Well, we do actually have them on the record. Sabrina Eaton went back and got to talk to the RTA, um, talked to Deputy General Manager Michael Shipper about this money. So $65 is coming to Cleveland. 57 of that will go to specifically to RTA, and they hope to use that to um, for projects on this $332 million unfunded projects list. So that'll make a dent in it, but definitely not going to fix everything they want. That includes rail car replacement, bus replacement, improving the railroad tracks, station and maintenance of facilities. And uh, he said the board will probably decide on a spending plan in May. So unlike some other uh, government agencies, they haven't spent the money before they got it, which is always good news. Um, but this comes from a bipartisan <laughs> infrastructure law and the 2022 government spending bill. They're getting ever closer to the day where they'll be able to replace those aging rail cars, which is a good thing because their lifetime is coming to an end. Yeah, they've been working on this for a long time. They tried to find a manufacturer last June. They received only one proposal. They said didn't meet the needs, but then again, they didn't give other places, other companies, any more time to get bids in. So expects to spend $240 million just on the rail cars. It wants cars that will like are custom made to fit on all of its different rail lines, which I guess is harder to find and obviously has to be made specifically. So um, it's a lot of money, but it's not going to solve all of the RTA's woes. Okay, if you're listening to Today in Ohio... Who is Sonia Pryor-Jones, and what is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb looking for her to do in his administration? We had a profile about her by Courtney Stolfi published yesterday. Yeah, Sonia Pryor-Jones is, is Justin Bibb's new chief of youth and family success. Under, under Bibb's predecessor, Frank Jackson, this job was known as the chief of prevention, intervention, and opportunity for youth. And the job was, at that time, to convene government agencies, nonprofits, businesses, and others in the private sector to address the social problems and the lack of opportunities that underlie crime. But Bibb and Pryor Jones are, are kind of reimagining this job. In addition to cultivating youth opportunities, Pryor Jones also oversees the city's Department of Aging and, and parts of the Community Relations Board. So she's taking an intergenerational approach to programs and services. And Pryor Jones says that Strengthening the family strengthens the community, which strengthens the city. So her duties touch many aspects of family life. She'll be considering violence prevention initiatives, how to connect kids with jobs of the future, opportunities for fun and safe play, and how to partner with city departments and non-city organizations to create the kind of environment that allows for learning and development to take place. So these are the out-of-school needs of kids. Bib also has a chief of education. So together, they are two parts of, of of Bibb's vision for how to tackle uh, the needs of kids uh, under his administration. But Pryor Jones, you know, she is a Glenville native, a graduate of Cleveland Public Schools, and the daughter of two Cleveland Public School bus drivers. Just an amazing homegrown talent that he recruited here. Incredible resume. So wishing her well. Do you think that part of his State of the City speech on his 100th day in office, he's going to talk a good bit about the the wide variety of of talent that he has brought into his administration is that going to be one of the highlights do you think of his first hundred days oh of course and he should i mean if you if you look back over the profiles that courtney has rolled out of 
of all of the new faces at City Hall. Um, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a quite impressive uh, array of of new talent that we haven't seen in a very long time. This 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 level of innovative and uh, and uh, you know. Uh, new thinkers it's it's quite impressive so he should he should well um he should spend some time on that there was a lot of talk in the campaign about changing the culture of city hall that you know it's got antiquated technology and it's not very welcoming and you got multiple stops so so you know new mayor coming in you got to assemble your team and you spend the first hundred days doing that now you've got to change that culture you've got to overcome the malaise and inertia of decades of city hall practice and i hope these folks can do that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean already i think we're we're seeing we're seeing things happening that uh i don't think we could have fathomed in the last 16 (laughs) years (laughs) last 40 years and uh the state of the city is sold out so if you don't have a ticket you're going to have to stream it if you want to see it you're listening. Well, that's the sign of the times, right? <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's a, it's a good thing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is at stake in a class action lawsuit that got the green light this week against an Akron-based personal injury law firm, Kisling, Nestico, and Reddick? Laura, I was surprised this was actually a question because it seems like a slam dunk that should go to court, but the law firm made a pitched argument to defeat this thing. Yeah, this is all over this $50 investigative fee. And this case has been going on for six years, but a three-judge panel of the Ninth District of Ohio Court of Appeals unanimously upheld a lower court ruling that grants class action certification to these former clients. Basically, everybody was charged $50 for investigative services that attorneys say was never provided. Instead, they basically went to funnel into investigators who would find new cases for the law firm to take on. And this could apply as many as 45,000 clients dating back to 2008. So that's a whole lot of money. And what you said, the full name of the law firm, I don't know if that rings as familiar to listeners, but you probably know the slogan, hurt in a car, call K&R. Yeah, this the, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's very well known. They're they're ubiquitous. Right. They've been around everywhere, uh, and there's a lot of clients that have paid this fee. Yeah, it's fifty bucks each, but but when you add it all up, it could be a lot of money. Yeah, and there's still questions in this case over a chiropractor that all of these clients were sent to to. Um, get help after their injuries in their car accidents and apparently they didn't take insurance and they charged um, they're alleging that he charged way too much just so that the uh, law firm could get that back Um, so that's still a question about that but yeah six years of fighting this already and uh, still going all right you're listening to today in ohio it's gonna be a short podcast today we're on to our final question what is going on in the rock hall's big beatles weekend that kicked off thursday night lisa i give this one to you you're the beatles fan that's, like right, me. that's right and yeah and because i'm the oldest i actually lived through the beatles but uh yeah <laughs> there's an ongoing exhibit the beatles get back to let it be but they're doing a special fan weekend that started last night and they had an event last night with recording engineer glenn johns who worked on the get back sessions back in 1969 
69. He's also a 2012 Hall of Fame inductee. Um, so there's going to be a lot going on. They're going to be uh, showing Beatles gear from the Hall of Fame collection. There will be trivia contests. You can design your own Beatles album cover. They will also have footage from the Beatles induction ceremony, which was back in 1988, and live music from the mechanics. And if I could just kind of go back down memory lane just a little bit, I was 12 years old in 1969 when Get Back, Let It Be sessions were being recorded. And this was, there was big signs of tension within the Beatles. John Lennon was hooked on heroin. Yoko Ono was being a pain in the butt. And they started recording these sessions at Twickenham Film Studios because they were going to make a movie out of it, which they eventually did. But then George Harrison walked out, and so they moved it to Apple Records. And thankfully they did because what we got from that was the famous rooftop concert where they stood on top of Apple Studios and sang. And then John Lennon at the end says, I hope we pass the audition. For a 12-year-old little hippie girl, it was like a big deal. Well, and the Get Back documentary that came out last year that um, Jackson put together, uh, it's eight hours long. And a lot of people I heard from who are not Beatles fans didn't want to watch it, but they should. you should watch the last 45 minutes because it is that rooftop concert from 10 different cameras wow. pieced together just brilliantly. It's hilarious. It's suspenseful with police officers, and you get to hear the, the uh, concert. The cool thing about Glenn Johns is there was a, there was an argument even as they were doing the recording about what how to release it and whether to release it. Right. Glenn Johns put together his own version right. of a mix of that music that has now been released as part of the recent Let It Be Deluxe Edition, which it's like getting a new Beatles album, really. Um, so it would have been cool to hear him. I just couldn't get down there. Uh, have you been down to that new exhibit yet, Lisa? No, and I need to... I, I, I wasn't aware of it, so I need to go down and check it out. My parents actually took me to see the Let It Be movie, which was released in 1971. So, yeah, ah, a big deal. You're the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very few people got to see that. And it was a very, it was very different, I guess. It was very somber yes. and showed them fighting a lot, whereas the Get Back 8-Hour shows, they those guys loved each other and they're having fun. And, God, it's just a great peek into the creative process of a genius musical group. I can't wait to go see the exhibit. I'm glad the Rock Hall picked up on that and put it together. Mm -hmm. So, All right, you're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going to give you a few minutes back this morning. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Lila. Thanks, Laura. We'll be back Monday.